This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast! podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to She Pivots, the podcast where we talk with women who dared to pivot out of one career and into something new and explore how their personal lives impacted these decisions. I'm your host, Emily Tish sussman We originally planned to air my conversation with a good friend of mine who's a writer and actor, but she's currently on the picket line advocating for fair wages for her and her fellow actors. So in honor of the WGA and SAG after strike, we're sharing some resources to support all the actors and writers striking for better contracts. You can head over to our causes page on the She Pivots website to find out how you can support our friends. In the meantime, we're re-releasing one of our favorite episodes from season one that more than deserves another listen. So tune in to hear about Reshma Sinjani's incredible journey that recounts her time running for Congress, starting Girls Who Code, and the deeply personal moment that led her to reevaluate it all, leading her to eventually launch Moms First. Hope you enjoy. You may have heard of Reshma Sanjani from her incredibly successful organization, Girls Who Code, or her books, Brave Not Perfect and Pay Up. Or maybe you heard her talk about her Marshall Plan for Moms, or perhaps you even caught her commencement speech for Yale this year. I've known Reshma for over a decade, and her drive and passion for change never seems to waver. She's a fierce advocate for women and girls and has never been one to shy away from the issue. She's an inspiration for me and for so many others, and her ambition has led to her incredible success. So how did Reshma go from what looked like the top of her career to dismantling the idea of success for women? And realizing that the ideas of corporate feminism that she was peddling in her many speeches was exactly what harmed women and mothers like her. Layered on top of her struggles with fertility, Reshma's journey to success is not what you might expect. Uh, Reshma Sajani, I am a mom, the CEO of Marshall and for Moms, and the founder of Girls Who Code. 
You have had an incredibly successful career by any definition. Were you always so ambitious? Oh my God. Yes. I was always so ambitious. You know, as a my parents came here as refugees. So I was like an Indian girl whose parents were like, you can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. So you know, education was really stressed in our family. I also think from a very young age, I just wanted to get out of my working class neighborhood, get out of, you know, Schaumburg, Illinois, and really always had my sights on like making a difference in the world. So yes, what did you think getting out looked like? Like, What did success look like? Well, I would say I think success looked like to me going to Yale Law School. Returning to Yale for our keynote address, Rashma Shodani comes to share her journey and the wisdom collected along the way with the class of 2022. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming back to Yale, Ms. Rashma Shodani. It is an honor to be here. Um, I want to thank... You know, like basically finding the most elite institution to accept you and validate you and, and getting there as fast as you could. I was going through my middle school yearbook. And the reason why was I uh, was in a I was in a very serious uh, fight when I was in eighth grade. I got beat up because I was a brown girl. And uh, my sister and I were, were bullied in school. And she was telling me when I had seen her about a few months ago that the girl who had bullied her at school had actually Facebooked her. And she was like a mom of three. And she had apologized. And as my sister was telling me kind of her story, I was thinking of my own. And trying to remember this, my you know, one of my friends, you know, Fudo, who had take walked me home after I had been beaten up with a baseball bat and the tennis racket. And so I was asking my dad, do you remember her? Do you remember where she lives? And so my dad had pulled out, because he knew I was coming home, all of the yearbooks. So I and, and it was like I kind of just relived that experience. So so maybe it was part of being in a community that I didn't feel accepted. You know, maybe it was part of, again, just this, I just always, I just remember laying down on the grass, looking at the clouds, just waiting for, quote, life to begin. And for me to, you know, I, I just never felt like I belonged where I grew up. I, I will say that when my sister told me that she got that apology, I was like, you know, I had blocked so much of it out that I was like, gosh, I, I, I did kind of relive it all, you know? So that's a little bit of, that's where kind of ambition comes from. I think if you are, you know, especially I think a woman of color or, you know, even if there's something about you that's different and you're in a community or a school or a group where you just don't feel like you belong, you're always kind of dreaming of getting out. And I think in many ways, that's where my ambition began. I think for a lot of people, it drives them maybe inward, like not to be quite as successful as you had been. You know, you said you thought about success being going to Yale Law School. Did you think about success beyond that? Like, did you envision what a life would look like? Yeah. Oh, gosh. See, I think so. You know, some of the greatest athletes in the world always had this moment where it should have happened for them. They should have made that shot. They should have gotten on that team. They should have been the first NBA draft pick. And they didn't. And some of the greatest athletes always carry that chip on their shoulder. So I excel from having the chip on my shoulder. You know what I mean? So I always felt like, you know, for college I had to go to the University of Illinois because my parents couldn't afford University of Michigan, which is where I really wanted to go. Um, you know, I never got into – I finally got into Yale Law School after three times after trying. Never won my congressional race or my public advocate race. So I have a lot of – things, right? Um, and I wasn't going to let motherhood be one of those things, 
right, where it was like I wanted to be a mom and I didn't have an easy pathway there. And so I am definitely the girl who has her back up against the wall, the thing that I feel like I've earned or I deserve or I have worked really hard for doesn't happen for me. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, as they're like reading my resume. But it's very true for me. And I think for me that creates, this, oh, okay, I'm going to show you. All right, cool. Like don't let me in. Like a drive. 100%. 100%. So you graduated Yale Law School and suddenly found yourself – on Wall Street. Yeah, New York City. I had $300,000 in student loan debt. Bush, quote, quote, I'm putting quotes, won. I, we all thought, yeah, we we're all going to the DOJ. That didn't happen. So I guess it, it was Davis Polk, you know, and I'm now a corporate lawyer, you know, working in New York City. I was, I was naive. I knew, I led my first march when I was 13. I knew that I wanted to be a public servant. I always thought I would run for office. And I thought that maybe I would go back to Chicago and do that. But I found myself, in, and I loved New York City. So I found myself in the city that I loved with a hell of a lot of debt, a really big paycheck, and I never really did the math. You know what I mean? Of like, well, actually, you know, it looks like you can make some dent, but you're just going to be paying off your interest. And so I naively just thought that I would like live New York fun life and make a little bit of money and pay off my debt. And then maybe in a couple of years, and I'll just, I'll go then run for office and be a public servant. And it just didn't play out that way. After her life in the fast lane, she finally decided it was time to run for office. I'm happy to welcome Reshma Sajani to the program today. Her name may sound familiar to you, in 2010, she ran for Congress in New York City. And in 2012, I became an upstart in a New York City congressional race. I swore I was going to win. I had the endorsement from the New York Daily News. The Wall Street Journal snapped pictures of me on Election Day. And CNBC called it one of the hottest races in the country. I mean, like a lot of us, right, we were actively involved in politics, like Emily's List, the DNC, we were organizing already. So, you know, I'm 33 years old. You know, Congressman Maloney is talking about retiring. She was going to run against Gillibrand, Kirsten Gillibrand, Senator Gillibrand for the Senate. There might be this open house seat. I'm in a job I hated. I've reached my final, like for me, I don't know about you, but I often make decisions by hitting rock bottom. So I'm really in this job that I hate. I haven't made all that progress on my debt. I am literally just, you know, a, a little piece of me is just dying a little bit every day. And somebody probably was like, oh, there's this congressional seat and you should run, not really thinking that I would actually do it. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I kind of worked myself up into doing that. And I just kind of very, I quit and I'm like, I'm in. And, you know, I have a lot of people around me I'm very blessed about this, who, like, support my crazy ideas and who are like, yes, run. Like, and I'm, you know, and so I decided I was going to run. And now she decides she's not retiring and she's not running for Senate. But now I've already made this decision. And, you know, Emily, back then in 2010, no one challenged Democratic primaries in the entire country. There was not one Democratic challenger. Now there's this woman, Rashma Sajani, who's 33 years old. 
and she's doing what? And I think because I didn't know any better and I wasn't part of the system. And as you know, we had this little whole crew of people that were kind of, you know, again, like progressive politics, wanted to change the world. We just thought we could like meet every voter and shake every hand. In many ways, it's what Ocasio did, you know, 10 years later. But my race didn't turn out the way that hers did. When Reshma decided to run for office, it was 2010, right on the heels of the 2008 election of President Barack Obama and the passage of the Affordable Care Act. The country as a whole felt uneasy with change. I mean, I remember Geraldine Ferraro called my finance director and was like, she can't run. I mean, I had all these women who I admired who were just, like, not happy about it. I mean, I remember I went up to Gloria Steinem and she's like, why are you doing that? And that's why I read a book after that, you know, Women Who Don't Wait in Line, because it was I was constantly told, it's not your turn. Wait in line. It's not your turn. And here I was, again, this brown girl, you know, this daughter of refugees who's supposed to represent everything that we were talking about doing in this country, and I was constantly silenced. But then we had this group of, like, young up-and-comers who were like, go, go, go. I mean— John Legend did a concert for me. You know, Jack Dorsey hosted an event for me. And at that time, both of them were just kind of building in their career. And I think we all saw the same thing in one another. Um, so it was it was just, again, so much courage of so – yourself included, right, of so many people who were going against the system in this really powerful way. So we've alluded to it. You did not win the congressional. No, not even close. Crushed, housed. In 2010, she ran for Congress in New York City, but didn't win. In 2013, she ran in the Democratic primary for public advocate, but lost in the crowded field that included Letitia James and Daniel Squadron. Really bad. I was broke. I was humiliated. I felt ashamed. People felt sorry for me, and I'm one of those people who I hate when people feel sorry for me. But on Election Day, the polls were right. And I only got 19% of the vote. And the same papers that said I was a rising political star now said I wasted $1.3 million on 6,321 votes. Don't do the math. It was humiliating. It was not even close. It was, (laughs) and it was really sad because I really thought I was going to win. You know, I remember did you really? I really did because this is what happens. It's like you're on in the subway stop and people are like, I voted for you. And finally it feels like everyone's, wow, everyone's voting for me. Like this is happening. And I just thought I could meet every hand and shake every voter. And I just didn't realize. And we had gotten a lot of attention, a lot of press. I had raised more than enough money. But you just can't beat the machine, especially in New York City. It's really hard. And I mean, but I also made a lot of mistakes. I was so not comfortable being a candidate. I have, it was just the way I dressed, like the what I said, and I just wasn't. I wasn't the same. I wasn't the same person I am today. And so that was a very. It was a really amazing experience because I learned so much. I feel like listening to you talk about it now, people will be surprised to find out the next thing you did was run for office again. Yes. <laughs> Because that's what happens, right, when you're like – because I – you know, afterwards, I'm crushed, but I'm not crush-crushed. Like, I'm like, okay, like, I did that wrong. I did that wrong. I wouldn't have hired that person. I would have done this. I can do it again. Now I know how to win. I run again. I lose again. (laughs) I was going to say, did you win? (laughs) I run again. I lose again. And let me tell you, the first time I ran, I didn't cry on election day. 
I and I, I would argue that in many ways I got over it pretty quickly because I was ready for the next race. I had like like an ambitious type A woman, I was like, okay, I know what I did wrong and now I know what to do right. And then on my second race, I was like, oh gosh, they just don't want me. They just don't want to vote for me because I had run a perfect campaign. I had no regrets. I was me, just like I am now. I, you know, had under, you know, I knew who to hire, who not to hire. I knew who was lying to me, who wasn't lying to me. And they just didn't vote for me. And that was just crushing because it was literally since I was 13, all I've wanted to do is serve in public office. And it was this realization then at 36 or, you know, whatever, that, oh, this is this might not happen in my lifetime. How did that feel? Um, it felt really rough. Also, I had a lot of, you know, I had a miscarriage right in the beginning of it. So there was just a lot, there's a lot that happened and a lot of heart that I had put into it. And so I think it was just, I think, yeah, it was devastating. It was really devastating. It's, it's still very devastating in some ways. The second one was much harder, much harder. Even though I got more votes, I got more votes. You know, I was, again, had no regrets. It didn't, it, one would argue in many ways, it helped my career afterwards. I didn't have a lot of enemies. I had people who kind of supported me afterwards. But it was a little bit like, oh, this might not happen for me in this lifetime. So you mentioned that you had been pregnant yeah. and then lost that pregnancy on that race. Was running for office lining up with you thinking about beginning a family? Yeah, because I, I mean, I read about this. I thought I was going to be like, the, you know, Rosie the Riveter pregnant on the campaign trail. And the vision. The vision of it was just so perfect. And so it just, yeah, it was never, again, I had also lined everything up that I thought the baby, if I had a baby, you know, in this moment, it would just be, you know, again, part of the story, not, not get in the way of it. She'd always seen herself as a mom. But she was also socialized to believe that being a mom needed to be done in secret. I always wanted to be a mom. I, like, lived with stuffed animals all surrounded <laughs> around me. Um, I was obsessed with my Cabbage Patch Kid doll. I, I loved babies. Always, 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 always desperately wanted to be a mom. I got pregnant while I'm, like, you know, again, about to launch my campaign and, I'm, and get married. Oh, my God. And I'm like, this is great. I'm not like, oh, shit. You know, this is not good. This is not good timing. I, I was not. Wor- I was not worried about it. I was actually excited about it. You know, being a candidate is physically very grueling. Very grueling. Was it something that you took into consideration once you found out you were pregnant? No, I was just it was like naive. We're and, just going and, and you know, listen, I you know, and then I you know miscarried within twelve or thirteen weeks, so the dream was very small. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It didn't. It didn't last long enough. But I think that I. Yeah, no, I think I think I thought like we could all handle it. But also it's because like listen, I think I think I've learned so much about the way people's bodies have to be built in order to carry pregnancies and carry, you know, whatever they're doing physically. Like my surrogate Amber is just physically like meant her body is just so she can be, you know, an ER nurse and be on her feet as she was when she carried Sai all night long and with the baby and she's good. Right. I never could do that. Even when I was pretty much on bed rest by the time I had Sean, you know, 
Did it change your vision of yourself as the candidate? Did you think that you could still run? I mean, you've clearly kept running. Yeah. But did you, you mean after I after I, after I miscarried? Yeah. Did it change your vision of, of no, I, yourself I, in the role? You know, I think it did. I think in many ways it started what became a bad habit of being able to compartmentalize pregnancy loss with what was happening in, in my life. Um, and so it became the beginning of many miscarriages that happened alongside many professional moments. The irony of the situation could not be more stark. Reshma did her TED Talk titled, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection. It's a powerful speech, but in contrast to her personal story, it's heartbreaking. The image of the girl boss Reshma had carefully constructed in her head slowly began to fracture. No one talked about it. So I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. No one said to me, hey, you probably shouldn't go make that speech after you just walked out of the doctor's office and had, didn't have a heartbeat. Because I think there's so much shame and silence um, around. I mean, it's so amazing today that we even talk about getting days off to grieve once you have a, a miscarriage. That was not at all part of even the conversation of, or of what people did. So in many ways, one, I think I thought that that was just the price of motherhood, of of wanting to be a mom, of wanting of being a boss, a girl boss, that like shit happens and it sucks, but you got to keep on moving. And how unhealthy. And it ironically, it wasn't until after I had my kid that I looked back at that period of my life and I was like, oh, I was depressed. Mm-hmm. It's why I didn't go out. It's why I was up and down in terms of my weight. It's why I was sad. You know, it's why I was just performing in many ways. And it wasn't until I, the same thing started happening with before my second, then I started crying all the time. And then I was like, okay, like, but I didn't, you know, it, it, it took me a while to, for it emotionally to break me in the way that it should have very early on. And, you know, look, I don't think I had someone, and it's my fault because I never really, I never really told anybody that I was in my closest friends. I wasn't like I'm going through all this. It would just be like, it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And oh, okay, what are we having for dinner? But you kept driving professionally. I mean, even through this time, after you lost that public advocate race, you went on to build this incredible yeah. nonprofit, Girls Who Code. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I lose the race, and I'm like, okay, th- then I'm going to show you. You're not going to elect me to be public advocate to teach, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of New York City public school kids to code. Then I'm going to make girls who code. At that time, we were really small. You know, we had taught like a handful of girls. I'm going to make girls who code the largest nonprofit in the world. We teach millions of girls. And I put my head down and I did. Girls Who Code went on to serve over 500,000 girls, women, and non-binary students, creating one of the largest pipelines for future females in engineering. What many don't know is that before she hit the ground running with Girls Who Code, she had the opportunity to move into a senior position in the New York City mayor's office. This was finally her opportunity to fulfill her lifetime goal of working in public service that she had dreamed of, but she said no. And she pivoted into something new, leaving behind her work in politics. Yeah. No, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to build, I know, I really, I was, I really wanted to build the organization. And, and I put my head down, you know, for years and just learned how to be a a CEO, worked on having a baby, 
you know, and just just grind it every single day. 2012, you started it. 30,000 plus graduates mm-hmm. in the program. Is it true that you didn't know how to code when you started it? No, I'm like the weirdest person to start Girls Who Code. <laughs> girls Who Code has proven time and time again that we're about more than just teaching girls and non-binary students how to code. We are growing a movement of over 450,000 students served now and counting. Founder of CEO of Girls Who Code. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your thank beautiful you, Robin. But through it all, Reshma still continued to struggle with her fertility. So, yeah, I would, I would go, I'd have a miscarriage, and then I'd be on stage with oh, introducing Obama. Smile, smile, smile. You know, I would have another miscarriage, and then I would be, there I was in Utah with 600 girls. Smile, smile, smile. And so I, I don't think that the closest, even my, even my team, you know, never really knew kind of, the, again, my private hell that was happening behind the scenes. So it was very, very, very unhealthy. I remember one time I was doing, I hadn't miscarried yet, but I knew I was going to. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was taping something in Washington, one of the big morning shows. And I was in the green room with, I think, again, I don't want to out her, but a, a very prominent young lawyer of a very prominent case that ignited the Black Lives Matter movement. And somehow we started talking, and she too had just had a miscarriage. And we were saying, like, how sick it was in many ways that we were both sitting there, me not having miscarried yet, but about to at any second, getting our hair and makeup done. Because in many ways we were both social activists. And we, and I think it's doubly worse. You're a woman who you think you have to just show up when trauma happens to you, and then you're fighting for justice. So you think that you also, the fight never ends. So you just have to, comp- you know, for me it was for the girls, for her it was young black boys who were being killed. And so, you know, that, like, wow. And, and what did that really say about who we were? Because in, in some ways you would turn around and be like, what's wrong with me? You know, like, this is not normal. But again, again, now going back, you know, with the work that I'm doing now, I attribute all of that to girl boss culture. It's like we have been told over and over and over again by the senior, by women in our life that are that this is the price you have to pay, that this is what the cost is, and 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 that I did it, you do it, and that no one ever said no, that's not right. Did you, when you were envisioning being successful and getting out and establishing yourself? Was it part of the vision? Like, no, how did you envision God, it? God, no. <laughs> no. I feel like I had built everything around motherhood not getting in my way of my ambition, of the thing that I wanted to achieve. And I never really loved the identity. Like, I remember, you know, I could appreciate this, like, you know, girls who code after becoming a mom, my team was like, great, you should be like one of those cool mom bloggers. And I'm like, no fucking way. No. Right? Like, I wouldn't even put on a pair of mom jeans. I was like, I am not, that's not my identity. Because I think that there was a lot of, like, being a mom is not sexy, not cool, wasn't not respected, right? It's the way many people, like, many people have always hid that piece of their identity. At least we've been taught that as young women, right? To hide that piece of your identity. And so I think it was something I desperately wanted, but I also kind of wanted to hide. So did your vision of yourself and your professional self and your professional ambition, do you think that your vision of yourself and where you were going changed once you did have your first son? Yes. Well, because then I realized, oh, my God. Like, you know, because I was just I was just angry and for most of that time. You know, it's like, why is this happening to me? Angry that it seemed like it was so much easier for other women. You know, angry that, like, 
Like, this wasn't supposed to be my story. Angry that I never got to really enjoy pregnancy in the entire journey. And just angry that I just, I couldn't ever really share it. I mean, and there were times, too, that I would try to share it when a reporter was interviewing me about, like, you know, whatever, writing a profile. And they'd never write about it. Never write about your anger? They'd never write about When they'd say, what's your biggest struggle that you've ever had? And I was like, well, it's been really hard having, you know, a baby and I've had a miscarriage or two. Never write about that. They never probed about that. Now, that's shifted, but I tried, you know, to kind of put it out there a little bit. Still, despite the countless mommy blogs, influencers, and podcasts, the conversations around getting pregnant, miscarriages, and surrogacy are seen as uncomfortable to talk about. It's like you rather tell someone you have cancer than say that you had a miscarriage. People don't know how to react, especially back then, uh, when someone tells you that. It's real, it makes them feel really, really uncomfortable. And I think it goes back to the fact that we have this archetype that it's so easy to get to to get pregnant and to keep a baby. And so it's almost like, wait, 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 what's wrong with you that you couldn't do that? So I think after I had Sean, I think I was able to look back and be like, oh, whoa, there was a lot. And, and, and to start to unravel that with my therapist, you know, with family, with friends, you know, and say, you know, I was not dealing with my my mental health issues, you know, that I was facing from the trauma of all the pregnancy losses. And then when I tried to have my second, I wasn't much better. Went back to the, all the old bad habits until I had this one loss, maybe my, sec- my second loss with Cy before I had my baby, um, second or third loss, second loss, where, you know, I was in California and, you know, we think the embryo takes... I'm sure everyone who know, who's gone through this HCG levels going up before it's going down. You know, get the call at, at what was then four in the morning because it was seven a.m. in New York, being like, you know, there's no there's no heartbeat, it's not going up, and then I have to hop on a flight at eleven o'clock or ten o'clock to go to Utah because we are announcing the uh, partnership with the governor of Utah with a room full of 700 girls. Now, mind you, I have been desperate to have a little girl, you know, and this was supposed to be it. And, you know, I remember my husband saying, you don't have to go. And I was like, no, 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 I have to go. And I go, you know, and I look back at those pictures and it's, and it's just like I have to do the whole thing with the governor, do the green room, do the photos, da, 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 da. and then, you know, I just got back and I was just off and everybody, I was just being, I was just not, you know, I was angry, you know, I was angry with my team. And, you know, now my new CEO, I remember Tariqa being like, what's wrong? And then I just convened everybody and I was just cried. I, and I said, guys, I just can't do this anymore. I need a break. I need to heal. I need to focus on what I need to do to have my next baby. After years of fertility treatments, IVF and more, she decided she wanted to try one last time. At this time now, I'm 43. I'm 43. I'm 43. And it's my last shot, you know, to get those embryos, right? And my doctor is amazing. And so I said to my husband, I was, I was going to be done. And then we meet this couple. And this woman says, essentially, like, my one regret is that I just didn't try one more time. And I basically, you know, come back and I, you know, say to my husband, my doctor, uh, I want to try again. And they're like, you just can't. Because at this point, it's just physically I have autoimmune issues. It's just, you know, blood clots, blah, 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 blah. It's just not. And I'm now in 43, right? And so they were basically like, okay, we'll let you try, but you can't carry the baby. Had that been something you'd ever considered before? 
Um, no, because Superpower Rashma wanted to basically show everybody that I could do it, you know, uh, myself more than anybody. But then I was like, okay, I will not try to put my body through this anymore and sacrifice my my life. And I will, um, and of course, do my IVF cycle. And at 43, I get these four beautiful, healthy embryos, of which one is now my son. But it was this really, you know, incredible lesson of just letting go. You know, first letting go of having to have this trauma and holding it on my own, letting go of the fact that maybe my body is not built to carry a baby and that is okay. But I think it's also for me a story of like, I never give up. (laughs) And I tell people all this time because now it's so beautiful. Like, and I think part of why I share this too is like literally I probably coach four, five, six families, women a week who (laughs) just DM me on Instagram um, who are going through their fertility struggles. And because, you know, I didn't have that. And so I want people to have someone that, even if it's a stranger, you know, that they DM on LinkedIn or Instagram that that can be there. But I always say to people, like, if you want to become a mother, you will become one. It may not be in the way that you think it's going to be, but, you know, you can. And I, I think this goes to probably... The end, which is why it's so, I think COVID was such an eye-opener for me. And just, again, the fact that I had been building and grinding and building and grinding and never really seeing my kids that I had worked so hard to actually see because I had, again, bought into this culture that, like, that's a sacrifice that you pay to be a working mom. So your new book, Pay Up, yeah. really gets to the heart of this. That yeah. it's not, we can't grind our way out of it. Yeah, we can't grind our way out of it. And the fact that, like, we don't have to hide from our dad. I mean, I wanted so desperately to be a mother. And then when I was a mother, I let culture take that away from me. I let workplaces take that away from me. I let the government basically say you got no support for doing that. I want to pause here because I think it's important to highlight this pivot. I think it's a moment that many of us have been slowly realizing that we just can't have it all. And even for someone like Reshma, who's such a fierce advocate for women— It took years for her to fully understand this. And despite the gut-wrenching loss of each pregnancy, she still felt it necessary to push further and harder in her career until she broke. And I think the whole point is we're being given a false choice. And that we all think it's just like I thought it was my personal problem that I had to basically fix and solve. And I didn't need any support or help from anybody. I was wrong. Here, I think so many moms think, well, it's my problem if I'm not able to balance my job and my caretaking responsibilities. It's, it's my problem if my husband is not doing his part. It's my problem, right, if my employer doesn't, you know. No, it's not. It's not you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with the system. And the whole idea of trying to fix the system and not fix the woman. I mean, everything, Emily, everything we read. And, again, these are from women I admire, and I was one of them, like, you know, from Confidence Code to Lean In to, like, every single women's leadership book is about fixing you, And that's why women come to us and say, I have imposter syndrome. What do I do? I don't have confidence. What should I do? And it's like, no, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with the system, with the structure. And so it's kind of wild because we need to have a radically different – we need to have a radically different conversation than we are having, you know, in workplaces, in government, which is all about the fact of why do we make it so damn hard? for working women and parents. We really haven't reconciled those two personalities that you were saying, the two archetypes of the working woman and the mom. We don't know how to do it. One of the mentors that I know that you have among the people that you mentioned is Secretary Hillary Clinton, who in many ways ended up embodying 
are taking on the anger yeah. that a lot of women who didn't feel like they had choices, they projected it onto her. Yep. What are some of the conversations you have with her around the changing the culture that you've written about in Pay Up? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways it's like they she she struggled with that. And I think she the way she led as a mother and a leader is still still the example for us. She never tried, she never hid Chelsea. She really never, you know what I mean? If you really think about it, she never hid Chelsea and she never hid being a mom. If you look at her Twitter profile or her Instagram profile, the first word on the top is mother, grandmother. So, you know, Secretary Clinton's always been ahead of her times. And this is another example of that. But I think she's always also recognized how how hard it is society makes it for women and that we do have this once in a lifetime. She said to me, she's like, "Don't, don't say, you know, please and thank you. Fight. Fight, fight, fight. Like this is the moment with the great resignation. This is the moment with all of, you know, the seller's market and the, you know, tight labor market for women to say enough, enough. We're not breastfeeding in closets. You know, don't freeze my eggs, but pay for me to freeze my eggs, but don't pay for my childcare. You know, don't stop pushing back on flexibility and, and remote working when I've already proven that I can be productive, you know, with caretaking responsibilities. So I, I feel like she's always been at the forefront of this fight. You know, there's some women, I won't name names, you know, who have never used their platform to elevate this issue. And in fact, have done quite the opposite. Whereas, you know, Secretary Clinton's always used her platform to elevate this issue. Always. She's always led with her motherhood before it was cool. Like so many other women, Reshma was crushed by the pandemic. After her long struggle with infertility, she finally had the baby through surrogacy. And then COVID hit like a ton of bricks. Teen pandemic has created a significant shift in the workforce. We've talked about it a lot. The great resignation, differing childcare needs, work from home flexibility. Well, now a new survey reported here first by NBC News this morning is showing the specific impact on women and the fact that working women are experiencing a burnout epidemic. NBC News. Course. I mean, COVID crushed me. Like COVID crushed me. I, you know, started the pandemic with uh, Girls Who Quit, you know, Super Bowl ad. I was having my newborn baby, you know, and then COVID came around, and now here I am, locked in the house, with my partner. I'm doing all the dishes and the laundry. I'm taking care of a newborn. I'm homeschooling, you know, a seven-year-old. I'm running the, the largest women and girls nonprofit in the world, and that's almost on the brink of potentially being shut down. And I'm, I'm freaking. I got nothing. I'm. I, it's just. It's breaking me. And my entire leadership team are working moms, and we're all just drowning. And, you know, I just – I saw clearly the issue that I didn't see. Like, how could I have not have seen this? This kind of – again, this fact that we have been doing two and a half jobs the whole time and that I had bought into this thing that we were even – had a shot at equality if we just got a mentor. If we just color-coded our calendar, if we just raised our hands more without thinking what we wanted to say, if we were just braver. And none of all of that was like this, what I call the big lie of corporate feminism. And I had been selling it. Like I had been selling it, dishing it out. And this has really been your mission. You have for so long said, young women and girls, you should be brave. You should lean in. You should work harder. You wrote a best-selling book about this, Brave Not Perfect. Of course, your TED Talk, we've all watched it. But now you're saying pandemic made you rethink this? Yeah, I mean, for the past decade, I told girls to barnstorm the corner office, lean in real hard, girl boss your way to the top, and I was wrong. 
It was so easy for many of us to fall into this big lie, and even easier to feel guilt when things didn't pan out as we were promised. Reshma saw the problem and the guilt being placed on women individually, and she now argues the problem is systemic. Her work now centers around this fight for culture change with the Marshall Plan for Moms. The ultimate pivot is not just changing your career, but it's changing your mindset, confronting the movement, and choosing to live your life guilt-free. I live life. And I don't feel, I used to feel guilty about living life. You know what I'm talking about? I know you're shaking your head. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. yes. (laughs) And it's like, and it's funny because I used to always look at my husband who's equally ambitious, equally successful, and he never did. And a lot of men don't. But we do as women. And so I don't want to live like that anymore. I'm not living like that anymore. Reshma, unfortunately, we're out of time. I could stay here literally all day and talk to you. This has been inspiring, informative, fun, maybe even, dare I say, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Reshma is still working on advocating for mothers through her organization, The Marshall Plan for Moms, and with her book, Pay Up. The Marshall Plan for Moms advocates for women's unpaid labor in the home and aims to transform our workplaces, government, and our culture to enable moms to thrive. Thank you for listening to this episode of She Pivots, where I talk with women about how their experiences and significant personal events led to their pivot and eventually their success. To learn more about Reshma and her latest book, follow us on Instagram at She Pivots the Podcast. Leave a rating and comment if you enjoyed this episode to help others learn about it. A special thank you to our partner, Marie Claire, and the team that made this episode possible. Talk to you next week. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich man Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con Season 5 The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts Or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.